Well, good morning, everybody. So glad you're here. And if you're on our stream, we want to welcome you as well. We're glad that you're here. You've been able to be a part of this uh, on an online format. So say hi to each other on that stream as we uh, greet each other again here. Uh, let's stand this morning as we go before the text. We'll do that. We're doing it today, folks. The time has come. David and Bathsheba, it's time. You knew it was coming, so here we go. We're ready for it. We're ready for it. Man, we are just going to scratch the surface of this text today. There is just so much here that we could get into. We could spend a long time thinking through and chewing on, uh, on this story. Uh, but we're going to try to focus this in here. Uh, lots to do, but here we go. We're going to be in 2 Samuel 11 today, and we'll start off uh, with a prayer. Uh, I do this when I speak. Uh, it's a prayer of Shema, which means to hear, to listen. You're inviting yourself to hear and listen to the voice of God as we go before the text this morning. It's helped us refocus and help us to get ready for God to say something. So say it after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Second Samuel 11. We'll start off at the first part, then we're going to jump ahead a little bit and get to the end. That'll be kind of the focus of our time together this morning. It says this, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. When David sent messenger, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him, sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will do no such thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fierce, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And then let's jump ahead here to verse 26. Let's uh, finish up the story from here. 
says this, And then when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Talk about an understatement, huh? It displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It was a brisk fall evening on Eastern University's campus. I was a sophomore at the time, getting ready for the highly competitive world of Division Three Student Council floor hockey intramurals. Can I get an amen? Yeah. We were ready. So I made my way up to Goff Dorm to pick up my teammate, and as I walked down the hall, I passed a girl. Uh, you know, we were just passing by. We looked at each other. I did not recognize this girl, so I did that, you know, just the basic kind of nod of, of acknowledgement, then passed by thinking that was the end of it. But then I heard from behind me, I said, oh, hey, hey, how are you? And I turned around, speaking to me. She wanted to know how I was doing. Now, again, I didn't recognize this girl, and maybe you've been in a situation like this where somebody's come up to you and they recognize you, but you don't really recognize them. It's kind of awkward. And so you kind of have two ways of going about this, one of which is you just kind of acknowledge it. You just be really upfront. You say, hey, how is it? My name's Brian. I don't, I don't recognize you. Uh, you know, we know it's awkward, but, you know, we, we can do that. Or you just kind of fake it, right? You just kind of go, oh, hey, you, hey, you, right? And you just kind of get away with it. I decided to do the latter. I was a little tired. I just, I didn't want to avoid the awkwardness. So I just, oh, hey, hey, how's it going, right? And I kind of took that step away, like to indicate, like, I'm not here for a conversation, right? You just kind of make that little move away. And I thought that was the end of it. But then I heard, oh, Nick, well, that's good, that's good. But, but how are you really doing? Ugh. Now she wants to actually have a conversation with me. And again, I have a choice to make here. At this point, I'm still not, I'm not too far gone. I could very easily say, I'm good. I, I, I'm sorry, I actually don't recognize you. Like, how, what's your name? I'm Brian. You know, I could have done that. But again, just to kind of avoid the awkwardness, thinking this was just kind of a, a, a conversation in passing, I, I continued on. I continued on with the, with the deceit, so to speak. I said, oh, oh, I'm good. No, really, yeah, I'm, I'm good. How are you? Thanks for asking. You good? Yeah, I'm good. We're all good. Awesome, right? And I kind of tried to make that next move away to kind of clearly communicate that the conversation was over. Well, she kept going. She wouldn't get me off. She wouldn't take me off the hook. Well, then she said something that uh, definitely threw me off. I was not expecting this. She said, how are you doing, you know, with that? With, with that. Ugh. Now there's a thing, and I don't know what that is. There is something, there's some of that that she wants to know about. Now again, I, th I feel like it's at this point. I still could have come clean, and it wouldn't have been too weird. You could have said, like, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, like, what do you mean? I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe you're, you're thinking of someone else. I was not so wise. I did not do that. I, 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 I forged ahead, and I said, it's great. Yeah, no, I, thanks for asking. I really appreciate it. No, things, things are going well. Th thanks, for, thanks for asking. Again, trying my best to get out of this thing. Then she says, great. Oh, that's so good. I'm, I'm so glad to hear. Did you get my card? Did you get my card? At this point, I felt like, all right, I already said that whatever that is, is good. Like, I felt like at this point, I'm kind of in too deep at this point. You just, you got to charge ahead, right? You just got to keep moving forward. 
I said, oh yeah, thank you so much. Like, it really meant a lot to me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, thanks. That's, that's, that's great. Then she said something, friends, that truly knocked me off my socks. I was not ready for this at all. She seemed super excited. She's like, oh good, because you know, we've been thinking about you. I'm glad you got the card. And then she asked, in a very low voice, so what did the doctor say? What did the doctor say? Can you imagine? I'm like, like everything in me, right? You're having that internal conversation with yourself going, what are you doing? No, get out. What are you doing? Right? Friends, I don't know where this came from. This came from a place deep inside me. And I did not hesitate at all. I stared her right in the eyes. And with all the confidence world, I looked at her and I said, pending a few tests, the doctors think I'm going to make it. I don't, I don't, I have no idea. I don't know where that, I don't know where it came from. And then at that point I knew I had to go. Like I basically ran at that point. I was like, I gotta go, see you later. And I just ran afterwards, right? Like here I am, I'm telling this poor girl that pending a few tests, the doctors think I'm gonna pull through. I have no idea what I got. I got something, I don't know. I have a that. And I'm telling this girl that I'm going to pull through. Well, come to find out later on that there was somebody on campus who had shared a similar height and build and general uh, facial features as me, who the campus was praying for as he was recovering from rare cancer surgery. Oh, right? Like, oh my goodness. And I told this poor girl that I was going to pull through and everything was good. And as I think back on that story, I go, how could I have done that? Like, you know, you, you look back and you're like, that was so stupid. Like, why would you, how could I possibly have done that? Right? And when we read this story today, I feel like we ask the same question, right? Here's David, King David, a, a friend of God, a man after God's own heart. How could he have done this? You see all the stories of faithfulness and all the things that he's done and, and ways that he's conquered and the way God's been. And then you get to this story and it feels like it comes out of nowhere. How could he be so dumb? How could this have happened? But the, the answer is really the same, isn't it? Because I don't go straight to lying about some serious medical prognosis, right? There are little decisions you make along the way, starting with the innocent little lie to get out of an awkward conversation that eventually leads you to the next choice, which leads you to the next choice, which leads you to the next choice, to you lying to a girl about your serious medical condition. It, it doesn't happen in isolation. It, it builds. There are warning signs. There's things going on underneath the surface. David doesn't commit adultery and murder in isolation. There are warning signs and things bubbling under the surface, echoes, if you will, all along the way. Before this story, there's actually the echoes of another. So let's take a look at that as we dive in this morning. If you've got your Bibles, flip to 1 Samuel 25. There's actually a story behind this story, a story that connects to this one. There are warning signs long before the night in question here, and we're going to find that in 1 Samuel 25. So if you have your Bibles or if you have your phones, Flip on, I'll invite you, flip on over to that. If you're on our stream, uh, flip on over to that. Let's walk through this story together. There's an echo of this story 
in our story today. Now, the setting of this story is David at this point is a refugee. He's not king yet. He's a refugee from King Saul. He and his men who have defected are hiding out in the wilderness. And there was this wealthy man who lived in that area who had large herds of sheep and goats. A wealthy man, he had all of this livestock. And what, this is what the text reads. It says his name was Nabal, this wealthy man, his name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And she was an intelligent and beautiful woman. The text goes out of its way to specifically mention that Abigail was beautiful. Now this word beautiful in the original text is the word tov in Hebrew. Tov. And at its very root, it just simply means good. She was good or good to the eye. Right? We see this word all the time in the scriptures, even back to the beginning. When God created the world, he saw that it was tov. He saw that it was good. She was good to the eye. And while David and his men were in the wilderness, they came across Nabal's flocks. They come across Nabal's flocks, they see his shepherds, and they could have easily taken from him. They could have easily pillaged him. They're out in the wilderness. They need supplies. And they could have very easily took advantage of his livelihood, but instead they protect it. They actually help him in this pursuit. So when time, the time came for the flocks to be bought, brought in for the season, David actually sends messengers out to ask Nabal for provisions. He says, hey, listen, we've been out in the wilderness. We've seen all your flocks. We could have very easily taken some. We could have very easily uh, uh, made your life miserable. But not only do we not do that, we actually helped you. So in exchange, now that you're bringing the sheep in, now that it's kind of festival time, hey, would you, would you invite us to the party? Could, could we have some provisions? Could we have a little cut of this, uh, of this deal that you have? But Nabal doesn't just say no. He says it with incredible obnoxiousness. His very name actually means the disgusting one or the bore. He's a jerk. But just because he is a disgusting person doesn't mean that he deserves any punishment. And he certainly doesn't deserve death. But David disagrees. So out of personal emotion, out of personal emotion, he orders 400 of his men to strap their swords. And David swears in God's name that I am going to kill Nabal and his family. Out of personal vengeance, out of personal emotion, he makes this rash decision. But something stops him from going through with it. And it was Abigail, Nabal's wife, who comes out to meet him. And this is what she says. She says, listen, pay no attention to my husband. He's a twit. He's a, he's a bore, right? That his name means disgusting. Like, don't forget about that guy, right? You had a reasonable request, and he treated you like dirt. Okay, so forgive him, right? So she's definitely bashing on her husband, right? No doubt about it. She's like, listen, that guy is a jerk. Like, forget about him, right? And so what she does is she says, hey, listen, here, I'm going to bring you what you asked for. So she, he brings, she brings his men some food. And then what she does is she says, uh, which is brilliant, I love this, very smart and wise, she preemptively thanks him for not murdering them. She goes, hey, hey, I just want to thank you so much already. It's sort of like thanking someone in advance for something. Has anyone ever thanked you in advance? Right? I want to thank you in advance for not murdering our whole family. Right? It's brilliant. It's sort of this little, it's wise and manipulative, and it's, it's, it's awesome, right? And, and it, really, it really sinks in with David. This is what she says in, in 1 Samuel 25, starting in verse 
30. It says, when the Lord has fulfilled, this is Abigail speaking to David, when the Lord has fulfilled for you every good thing he promised you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, you will not have on your conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged yourself. She's like, listen, when you become king, when God gives you everything, you're not going to want this kind of on you. You're not going to want the staggering burden of this needless bloodshed. You're, you're going to murder a lot of people, and you don't want that hanging on your conscience. So I'm going to help you. I'm going to keep you from doing that. But when the Lord, your God, has brought my Lord success—she's talking to David—when the Lord has brought you success, remember your servant. She's talking about herself. Remember me. Remember me. I'm winking right now. You might not see it, but we'll get to that in a second. Remember me, David. She thanks David in advance for not committing murder and then asks that he remember her. Now again, this speaks to David. It stops him in his tracks. He doesn't go through with it. But, but, the warning signs are there. The warning signs are there. David didn't murder anybody, but he planned to. He was going to. Until somebody confronted him and stopped him before he committed it, but had Abigail not gotten there, he would have let his po per personal, emotional decision drive him towards murder. The roots are underneath the surface. And when Abigail asked David to remember her, what does remember mean? Rabbis and scholars alike have concluded that there's more going on here than meets the eye. Speaking of I, remember, Abigail, we're told, is very tov. She's very good. Her beauty is specifically noted. She's good to the eye. And Nabal, at the end of this story, dies. And what happens immediately once Nabal dies is that David sends for Abigail. The body isn't even cold yet, and David brings her up to marry her. Huh, that seems a little odd. Why would you do that so quickly? Long after Nabal is dead, everywhere after this, Abigail is always referred to as Abigail, the wife of Nabal, which many believe is sort of this little hint to say whatever went down, whatever happened there on that hill that day, once David married Abigail, it never really was truly above board. She was always still at the end of the day, Abigail, wife of Nabal. In fact, later on, when David marries Bathsheba in our story today, she also is always called Uriah's wife, even after Uriah is dead. It's sort of this nudge and this wink to say that there's something that didn't quite, wasn't quite right about this. And all of this leads many to believe that remember was actually more of an illegitimate proposal. It was David and, and, and Abigail talking about marriage while she was still married. Sort of a remember me, hey, when you get in, when you get to the, when you get to the palace, remember me, what's up? Remember me, right? That's what's going on here, they think. I, I love how one person puts, one scholar, he puts it this way. She offers provisions to David's men, but to David she offers herself. She offers herself instead. So this is what we have, friends. We have a man ready to kill for personal reasons and entertain relations with a beautiful married woman. The signs are there. See, this story is the echoes of Abigail. 
we ask, how could he possibly do this? And we go, well, the warning signs were there. There's the echoes of Abigail that ring true. But there's also echoes of another. So let's flip back to our passage this morning in First, Second, in first Samuel 11, because there's actually echoes of a, a deeper story, an older story that goes back even more. And it says this, starting in verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. Or some translations will say, bring her, bring her up. She was brought up. Let's take a look at some of the wording here, because I think the author's trying to do something. Let's just, let's, let's look a little deeper here. What echoes are we hearing from the story? Well, first off, David's sin begins with what he saw with his eyes. He saw the woman bathing. Scripture warns us about this, that a lot of times our sin begins with what we see. In Job 31, it warns, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. He knows that the, the, that this, the problem here starts with the eyes. So I made a covenant not to look lustfully at a woman. Or Proverbs 6 says, Do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes. There's this thing, this visual that happens, right? Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Remember that? Yeah. That's the truth of the matter. It starts with David, with his eyes, what he saw. And then it says that he sees that the woman is very beautiful. There's that word again. It's the echoes of Abigail. It's the word tov. She was good. He saw with, her, with his eyes that it was good. Good to the eye. She's good to the eye. And then it says that David sent messengers to get her. Or again, some translations will say, she came to him. Now this is being very gracious to David. She like sort of came up, right? The real word here is she took her. She took her. So we have a story in which a man sees what is good and then takes it. Now let's play a little game. Where have we heard that before? What echoes call out from this story, from a story from above, about someone seeing something good and then taking it? It's the echoes of Eden. This is the original story. This is where it all began. This is where sin enters the world. Take a look. Genesis 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it. All three words, totally the same. They match up. She sees what is good and takes it. It's almost like the author in putting these little words in. Uh, there's a principle called the principle of first, uh, uh, first response or first hearing in which you read a bunch of words that you've heard before kind of matched together, and you ask yourself, where have I heard that before? And usually that's a sign of what an author is trying to do. He's trying to show you that whatever that's happening here, whatever's happening in the David account, is rooted back 
to that original sin. Because that's what it is, isn't it? It's, it's all the same sin. It's, it's us being uh, sort of tainted with sin. We are all now in this rhythm of seeing what is good and taking. It's like the author saying, yeah, yeah, this, this is a story as old as time itself. You see what is good and you take. It's rooted. It's the echoes of Eden. It's a story that keeps getting told. So we see here this echoes of Eden. We see here the echoes of Abigail. But friends, there is the echoes of one more person. There's an echo of another. You see, as we move through our story, David sleeps with Bathsheba. Bathsheba gets pregnant, and now David is in a jam, right? Once she begins to show, the people gonna know, right? They're gonna know what happened. They can, they can figure it out. Her husband's not here. How are you getting pregnant? And certainly the word is going to get out. He is, David has sent enough messengers around that people kind of know what's up, right? In fact, in the next, uh, in the next chapter, Nathan is going to come and, and address this sin in his life. Nathan knows the word has gotten out. David knows he's in trouble. He's in a jam. So his first plan is to bring back the husband, Uriah, back from battle. Let him go home for the night, do the things that married couples do, and hope people don't do the math. That's his plan. Now, the problem with this plan is that Uriah is an authentic follower of God. And he refuses to even go into his home because he was being faithful to God's law. Because in God's law, it says that when you went out to battle, when you were fighting for the Lord, they call that holy war. When you're, when you're in the midst of holy war, you are to be celibate in order to be set apart and consecrated, to say, this isn't necessarily my war. I'm fighting on behalf of God. I'm not using my own personal ambitions, but God has asked us to do something, so we are in the midst of something different here. And God said, when you do that, when you engage in holy war, one of the things to set yourselves apart is to be celibate. So I can assure you, Uriah saying, I'm not going into my house, is not because of desire, right? I can, be, I can assure you of that. He's following God's law. He's faithful to the law of God, and he is going to hold that when David fails. Where David fails in the law, Uriah succeeds. So at this point, David is getting desperate. So he moves to plan B. And it says this in the text. In the morning, this is plan B for David. In the morning then, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah. Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fierce, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Right? He writes the note. He puts it in Uriah's hand and sends him on his way. Think about that. Uriah is carrying his own death sentence in his very hand as he goes back to the battle. Right? Put him out where the fighting is fierce. He's going to go in front, it says, where the fighting is fierce, and then withdraw, leave, abandon, forsake walk away, and let him die. That's the plan. Uriah is to be put in front of the fiercest fighting so that he will die, and abandon him so that he might die. See, here's the thing. Adultery was a capital crime according to God's law. It was a capital offense. It resulted in your death. It says this in Leviticus. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, and we know that he saw her from his roof— it's about as close to being a neighbor as you can get. The man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor. Both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. It's pretty cut and dry, right? Pretty slam dunk case here. David knows this is a capital offense. 
Now, while I doubt anyone is actually going to enforce this punishment on King David, right? Like, who's going to actually show up to King David and say, Oh, David, listen, it's pretty clear here what's going on. Like, I think you got to die, right? No one's actually likely going to enforce this on him. But I think the principle still remains. David's act deserves death. David's act deserves death. He deserved to die for what he had done. If David wants to go free, then Uriah is going to have to die in his place. If David wants to go free, Uriah has to die in his place. Have we made the connection yet? Yeah. Let's invite the band up as we reflect on that a little bit. You see, friends, it's the echoes of Abigail and it's the echoes of Eden. But it's also the echoes of another. See, we read the end of this story, and we go, I've I've heard this before. There's an echo of another that comes through in the story. Friends, I've spent my whole life asking the question, how could I have done that? And we can laugh for, you know, little things in college where you ask, you know, you you sort of tell little white lies and it progresses to something. Like, that's a funny story at the end, but I've asked that question for things a lot bigger than that. And it's the question you've asked. How, how could I have done that? How could I possibly have done that? And the answer is the same. The warning signs are there. The echoes of Abigail ring true for you too. You see, this sin thing is built deep in our bones. There are warning signs all along the way. You don't develop sin. It's in you. And the echoes of Abigail, the warning signs ring true. Maybe you have a propensity towards control or prejudice or anger or power or laziness or alcoholism or perfection or materialism or fill in the blank. And if you can't fill in the blank, just put pride in, right? Then, then all our bases are covered, right? Fill in the blank. And we see what is good with our eyes and we take it. It's the echoes of Eden. We take it. What rises up, built inside of us, lashes out into the world. And we look back and we go, how could I have done that again? Not just how could I have done that. How could I have done that again? How could I have done that again? And again. See, it goes to Eden. This story has been told again and again and again. And no matter what it is, the principle remains. Someone was going to have to die for your sin. I don't care how socially acceptable we've made it, and I don't care what justifications you have to commit it. A true, righteous, fair judge necessitates someone has to die. That's how damaging, disgusting, and destructive sin is. Oh, but friends, thanks be to God that there's an echo of another because you have a Uriah as well. And your Uriah upheld the law where you failed. And your Uriah carried his own death sentence in his hand. And your Uriah was put in front of the fiercest fighting and then withdrawn, abandoned, forsaken on a cross to die in your place. You see, friends, there is an echoes of another. Because every story echoes Jesus' name. Let's pray.
God, we come again uh, humbled, asking, how could we have done that again, God? How could we have done that again? And the echoes of Abigail and the echoes of Eden ring true in our lives as well. But thank you, Jesus, that your echoes ring true too. Thank you for being our Uriah who stands where the fighting is fierce, who stands between us and the enemy. And even though we withdraw and forsake, you stand your ground and die so that I might be set free. Lord, we can't thank you enough. But hear our words and our songs now as we respond and say thank you for everything you've done. In your name I pray.